The law doesn't require you to be perfect. The law requires you to be reasonable. We don't need to go to stupid places and associate with stupid people and be involved in stupid sorts of things. Uh, don't get involved in a shooting during election year. This is the In Self-Defense Podcast with Don West, Steve Moses, and Sean Vincent. Exploring high-profile self-defense cases and identifying the lessons learned for concealed carriers. Hey everybody, it's Sean Vincent. Thanks for listening into the podcast today. Those quotes that you heard in our intro are from none other than John Farnham. John is the founder of Defense Training International. He's a well-regarded firearms instructor. John is a uh, combat veteran. He served in Vietnam after his service to the country. He was a law enforcement officer. He received training both as a serviceman and as a police officer in firearms. He found that that training wasn't complete, that it didn't necessarily give the, the trainees, the experience they needed to become responsible armed citizens. And in private life, after his servicement, he decided he might be able to do it a little bit better. He founded Defense Training International. He's been doing it for decades now. We're lucky to have him on the show, thanks to our friend Steve Moses himself, a well-regarded firearms instructor. He's got the best friends in the industry and he's convinced them to appear on our show and we're super grateful for that uh, our conversation today is, is wide ranging but uh, let's jump right into it i want you guys to to meet john farnham if you don't know him already the idea that uh, uh we carry guns and uh, pistols at least in there uh, they're instantly ready uh, to go. When I uh, went through my police training, uh, they ran all cold ranges. And, and uh, uh, you know, don't load that gun until I give you permission. And unload it immediately after you shoot. And, uh, uh, you know, Jeff Cooper was the original one to point out this is nonsense. Uh, we have to teach people that you can carry loaded guns around. Uh, this uh, later, you know, was applied to our, our rifle courses where... I, I do a course called Urban Rifle, uh, where uh, you know the rifles are carried by the students and they're loaded all the time. And just to get students used to that, that you can do this, uh, it's not unsafe. It's, it's something that the, the, the rifles we use are designed to do exactly this. And uh, uh, even today, in much of the competition and in some of the instruction, they still run cold ranges. And I think that is that is dangerously obsolete. Just because it's not the real world. If you if you have an unarmed firearm, you're essentially unarmed, right? And that doesn't do well, anybody good. Uh, this is uh, as uh, I keep on quoting Jeff Cooper, but uh, uh, I think he's the one I first heard this from. That uh, a gun that's perfectly safe is perfectly useless. Uh, we these are our deadly weapons that we're carrying around. They're designed to kill people, and that uh, we don't apologize for that. I don't think it's possible to handle deadly weapons safely. I don't think that's possible. In fact, I don't like to use the word safe because that implies a guarantee. I think we can handle deadly weapons carefully. Uh, 
But um, no matter whose system you use or no matter what system you adhere to or what procedure you adhere to, uh, you know, an accident may be in your future. Uh, Risk attaches to having guns around. Risk attaches to not having guns around. Uh, You don't get a risk-free life. And And in the end, go ahead. No, and one thing I was thinking, I was reviewing your your website, but I think that feeds into a lot of conversation about the mindset of the carrier. Yes. Right? Being aware that you have uh, a deadly weapon on you, that you've recognized the potential that you will meet a deadly threat in the course of your life. You've resolved to be willing to address that threat with deadly force. And now you've adopted this, uh, uh, you know, dedication to defend yourself. And along with that comes responsibility. But I got a sense from what you'd written on your website that having that self-defense mindset's key to being, if not safe, then responsible and careful. Uh, and uh, uh, you put it very well. Uh, all this stuff we have to think through. We have to think through ahead of time. Uh, of course, uh, none of us look forward to any terrible thing happening. Uh, but uh, carrying a gun around on a regular basis is very analogous to wearing a seatbelt when you're climbing your car. You know, I don't put a seatbelt on because I expect to be in an accident. You know, if I expect to be in an accident, I wouldn't get in the car. Uh, we regard wearing a seatbelt to be a reasonable precaution. And, uh, by the same token, uh, we, you know, we carry guns on a regular basis. And uh, this is another philosophical issue we run into, of course, because, uh, people say, well, I carry a gun, you know, when I go to certain parts of town or something like that, but I don't the rest of the time. Well, that's analogous to saying, well, I, I only put a seatbelt on when I go to the freeway, but in the rest of the time I don't wear it. You know, we, we would laugh at logic like that. That's utter nonsense. Uh, either wear it or don't. Uh, and I tell my students the same, either carry a gun or don't. But please don't insult my intelligence by trying to convince me you can divide your day into safe and dangerous times. And so it's a it's a permanent mindset that you adopt. If yeah, yes. In your point of view, if you're going to be a concealed carrier, you're a concealed carrier, and that's the choice you've made. And so you're always in that mindset. It's a way of life. And it it requires a uh, a commitment, and it requires to, for us to endure certain inconveniences. As you know, uh, you know, carrying it around on a daily basis is a confounded nuisance. Uh, uh, many uh, manufacturers of holsters and all that will will say things like, "It's so comfortable, you won't know you have it on." Oh yes, you will. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you. Yeah. Oh yes, you will. Uh, and. Uh, it's a nuisance, and uh, in a perfect world, I certainly wouldn't bother with it. Uh, but it's one of the discomforts and inconveniences and annoyances we endure uh, in exchange for the protection it provides us. I asked John and Steve what they thought had changed most in the firearms training industry in the last 20 years, and they both agreed that there's now more of an emphasis on hard skills that's operating the firearm than there is on soft skills, and that is the mindset, avoidance, preclusion, and de-escalation tactics that can serve to keep an armed defender out of trouble before they're forced to resort to their firearm as a last defense against the uh, aggressor. Here's Steve to start us out. 
Steve, you said you've been working with John for 20 plus years now. And I'd love for you, I think you could ask some questions. I, I'd really love to know how the industry's changed during that time and what the mindset and the priorities of the students that you guys encounter are between now and, and then, how that's evolved. Uh well, that's a good question. Uh, back in the day, as we say, uh, the people that were uh, seeking out this kind of training were very, very interested in the defensive use of handguns. And uh, much of what we did was we wanted to be better prepared for that day that we hoped that never came. Which So that included not only, you know, having good gun handling skills and competent uh, combat, you know, accuracy or marksmanship available to us that we knew what a you know a deadly force incident may look like what we could do to perhaps make ourselves less likely to be selected as a victim if selected what we could do to deter that person or disengage and if forced to fight uh fight back effectively in such a manner that there was a high probability that we would go home you know unscathed uh during the last few years, uh, you have seen kind of a, an explosion in the training industry. Uh, there used to be probably, you know, back in when I was doing this in the mid 90s, there were probably 20 or 30 uh, farm trainers throughout the United States that I was aware of that were actually doing training on any kind of, a, you know, a real quality level. John, of course, was one. Uh, since that time, there's probably hundreds, if not thousands. Oh, and yeah. uh, there's people that are opening up uh, farm training schools or starting training uh, every day. Uh, many of them, as they would say, they were last year's student and they are this year's instructor. Mm. <laughs> exactly. And uh, in my opinion, also, we're seeing a little bit less focus on uh, what's really involved in being in a potentially lethal force confrontation with another person. Uh, there's much more emphasis on guns, equipment, gear, sub-second draws, quick splits, that is times between, you know, from one, the time one shot is fired to another shot. Uh, a lot of people are posting, you know, their performances on Facebook to, so everybody else can kind of ooh and ah. Uh, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing in that it has brought into the community maybe a lot of people that would not be here otherwise. But uh, by the same token, uh, now I have to search a lot harder for instructors that I want to continue to train under. Well, that's right. You know, a, a great deal of our uh, our instruction, and you and I both do this, uh, has little to do with the operation of a machine. Uh, we talk about lifestyle. Uh, what what are the kinds of things I can do to make uh, a lethal confrontation in my life less likely? Uh, this includes places you go, people you associate with, uh, the ways you dress, uh, your language, all kinds of stuff. We also have to talk about the aftermath, uh, dealing with uh, the criminal justice system and what kinds of things you can expect and uh, what kinds of things you have to do beforehand uh, and afterward to uh, maintain your options and uh, protect yourself. Uh, all this is a uh, part of your training too. And unfortunately, the, uh, many of the people you mentioned that uh, like to go out and shoot thousands of rounds and all that and uh, uh, just concentrate on uh, proficiently operating machine, 
uh, failed to address uh, that part. Uh, I think, uh, you know, spending uh, uh, the next 20 years in a penitentiary is nearly as bad a result as uh, being severely injured in a fight, and uh, we have to address both issues. In this next segment, John makes a great point that a lot of prosecutors are politicians. They're elected to that position, and sometimes how they prosecute firearm offenses and self-defense claims can be influenced by their constituency. It means that armed defenders now more than ever need to be aware of the legal challenges that may come in the wake of a self-defense shooting. You know, one thing on your website, John, that struck my attention was I'd never seen anybody mention courtroom demeanor as one of the skills that they might provide. Yes. Yes. Uh, you, uh, you have to know what to say, what not to say. Uh, in the, uh, you know, ahead of time, I, you know, when you're involved in an incident like this, I can promise you, uh, the local prosecutor will scour the internet, uh, looking at your Facebook page, all your social media, your emails and everything else, looking for things you have said, uh, that may reflect badly on you. Uh, in the cases I'm involved in, uh, uh, judges never used to let this stuff in. It was, you know, when the prosecutor or the plaintiff's attorney tried to introduce this, they say, objection, that's irrelevant. That has nothing to do with the case. What I'm seeing today, and it's quite a trend, is judges are letting this stuff in. Uh, churches you go to, uh, organizations you're members of, why is that relevant? Uh, and yet the jury's going to hear this. Uh, and so we have to start thinking about this now in advance and, uh, and make sure that... Uh, 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 we're not out there making, uh, you know, threatening comments or uh, uh, appearing to uh, cheerlead for some violent event and, uh, and doing that in print on uh, some social media page. I can promise you the uh, prosecutor will find that and the jury will probably hear it and it, uh, it won't be to your benefit. Do you sense a, a disconnect from a lot of the students that come to you between what their actual concerns are, or let me ask it this way. Do you feel like people have a really bad idea of what the process, the criminal justice system is like and how likely they are to face a prosecution for what they in their minds think is clear cut self-defense? I'm afraid there's very little that's clear cut. Uh, one of the pieces I say this tongue in cheek, of course, but one of the cases, the things, the piece of advice I give to my students uh, don't get involved in a shooting during an election year. It, it's going to widely depend on uh, the part of the country you're in, the, the particular jurisdiction, the, uh, the individual uh, you know, prosecutor and the, the, his, his personal philosophy. Uh, we're seeing some prosecutors now that have been, uh, you know, uh, essentially uh, – put into office by outsiders like uh, Soros, who has sponsored several, uh, and uh, and they get elected and they've got a, uh, you know, they've got a definite anti-gun, anti-self-defense agenda, anti-police agenda. Uh, prosecutors shouldn't have agendas, uh, but we're seeing it. Uh, uh, they do. Not much you can do about that. Uh, what you can do on your end is try to make yourself uh, hard to convict. 
make yourself an unattractive case. Uh, and it all comes down to, I suppose, we need to be good people. Uh, not perfect, God knows, but uh, we need to be good people. Uh, we don't need to go to stupid places and associate with stupid people uh, and uh, and be involved in stupid sorts of things. Uh, that's what, uh, on the head end, that's what gets people into trouble. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, Steve and I try to set the example here by being a colossal bore. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, and we a love colossal, to succeed. A colossal bore. <laughs> tell, tell me more about that, because what, what I think what I think you're saying there is is when you look at deselecting yourself as a target, which is a term that Steve taught me yeah. that I really like. Yeah. Uh, situational awareness. Yeah. Uh, if if it's not safe to go there without a gun, it's not safe to go there with a gun. Right. right? These are these are mindset things that. I think some people, we hear it a lot, like, oh, am I just supposed to be a victim or I have a right to be there or, yeah, you, yeah, you know, yeah. uh -huh. and, and how do you, how do you deal with that point of view when you're dealing with? Well, I, you know, when you get involved in a lethal force incident on the sidewalk in front of the drunken monkey bar at one thirty in the morning, how much sympathy do you think you're going to get from a jury? Uh, right. It's not illegal to be there, but it's not smart. Uh, uh, smart people are in bed and sound asleep at that hour. And, uh, so while, uh, you have a right to do, uh, a lot of things, uh, a lot of things you have a right to do aren't very smart and I don't recommend. And when you carry a gun around it, it, it makes this very important. You start looking at the kinds of places you go, the hours of the day you're there, the kinds of people you associate with and make adjustments as necessary. In addition to his work as a firearms trainer, John Farnham has also served as an expert witness for both defense attorneys and prosecutors in firearms use of force cases. He uh, follows the facts, he tells the truth, and he gives fair and honest assessment of whether the use of force was justified. It's a great example of how important experts can be in a self-defense trial. Here's my conversation with John Farnham on being an expert witness. So one thing I know uh, Don's going to be pretty interested in, too, is your work as an expert witness in uh, you've been involved with self-defense criminal uh, prosecutions either. Yes. Um, and one one thing I love about Don as a as a lawyer, he's a great trial lawyer. Uh, he's also better than anyone I've ever met at working with experts. Yes. And uh, I think a lot of people don't realize how important expert witnesses are going to be at trial. And Don, would you like to, to, to preface that for our listeners? Just you, you think you had a, a someone attacked you, you used your firearm in self-defense and you declared self-defense and that's the story. Uh, but we know that there can be video experts required, people, oh, yeah. tooling experts required that can repiece the fragments of a bullet and trace it to a firearm. Uh, experts on toxicology experts you never even thought of uh, and and they'd be sometimes an entire case can hinge on that give us a preface on that before we start our conversation with john about his work in that regard you know some people like to say the science doesn't lie so if you're talking about maybe harder sciences at this point uh forensic pathology uh, blood dna that kind of stuff 
Yeah, if you've got some witness testimony that may be inconsistent with the science, then I think juries typically will defer to the science, even though in most regards, the conclusion that the science is demonstrating is actually an opinion of sorts. It's just a much right. more commonly accepted opinion than in more of what may be considered the more subjective areas. And there's been a, a bit of a pendulum swing, I think, the last few years where sciences or science, pseudoscience testimony isn't as well regarded now as it was in years past. An example might be handwriting, for example, that's been discredited in some courts, even to some degree, tool mark evidence isn't quite as convincing, I think, as it used to be, uh, tool mark being markings on items. In, in the firearms business, the, the, tool, uh, the tool marks would typically be made by uh, a firing pin or uh, on the casing from being ejected, uh, riflings on a projectile from the barrel and right. that sort of thing. So that's still admissible evidence. And when it's strong, it's very, very convincing. But I think that those kinds of things can really focus a jury on the science aspects, uh, help determine trajectory, help determine muzzle distance from gunshot residue. Uh, forensic pathologists can talk about what happens inside the body in certain circumstances, what the uh, medical cause of death was and that sort of thing. But I know that we're talking with John here today. So what we're really talking about, I think, is more a use of force yes. type expert. And, All um, that forensic stuff, I'm frankly not an expert on, uh, or certainly not m enough of an expert to uh, to testify. But uh, uh, we were at a, uh, a law enforcement conference here just uh, last year where uh, one of the uh, instructors uh, was a video expert. And he goes around the country destroying cases based on video evidence and can show that uh, there's a lot that video misses. <laughs> you know, people say, well, it's right, it's right there, it's on video. Don't be too sure. Don't even be too sure what you're looking at. Uh, yeah, he's- yeah, yeah, uh, he, fascinating. He, I was in a case where the frame rate of the video failed to capture the muzzle flash. Correct. So it didn't even correct. look like the gun was ever fired and you couldn't tell when. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I don't even like the term expert witness because most cases I get involved in, no, never go to trial. I don't, I'm not a witness. I'm so you're a consulting more, more than, expert. I'm, I'm an expert assistant because most, uh, lawyers, uh, don't know a lot about certain technical areas. And the ones that, uh, Steve and I specialize in are, uh, you know, use of force and the reasonableness of certain actions. And, uh, and, uh, I've testified on both sides. I've testified for the process. I should say I have assisted the prosecution in a number of cases and I've uh, assisted the defense in a number of cases. So I, I've been you on know, both sides. I'm, I'm glad you say that too, because in the end, the truth is the truth, right? And a good yes. decision is a good decision, a bad decision is a bad decision. And what's funny about this podcast, you know, Don and I have worked on a number of self-defense cases together. And of course, we're complete advocates we're, you know, Don's a career criminal defense attorney, and we, we're advocates for the defendant in these cases. And in this context, because we've done so many self-defense cases, we're an advocate for the defender. But that also means we are great objective observers of what things lead a jury to 
be more likely to acquit a shooter and things that will be more likely to have a jury convict a shooter. And as we do this for longer, and even as we observe other cases that are in the popular zeitgeist, uh, we see the same mistakes lead to the same tragic consequences. And then we see other behaviors consistently lead to people who are uh, ultimately exonerated or better yet, never even charged. Uh, Correct. Maybe you can speak to some of the, uh, a couple of, uh, mistakes that you've seen that are common and a couple of uh, things that people have done that have saved them when they're faced with the scrutiny of a zealous or overzealous prosecutor. Well, I should, uh, uh, you know, point out that, uh, I, I don't regard myself as an advocate. The, the person has an advocate. That's his attorney. I'm assisting the attorney, uh, by, you know, providing, uh, certain information he wouldn't be of uh, no otherwise, and, and sometimes edu- educating the jury in that regard. Sure, that's the objective part. Uh, yeah, but my only my only obligation is to the truth. In most cases that come to me, I turn down just for that reason. Uh, the lawyer explains it to me, and uh, uh, I say, you know, I appreciate your call. This is not something I think I can help you with, so don't call back. <laughs> and uh, that's how most of those conversations end because. Uh, uh, most of those conversations, uh, those cases, I don't want. Uh, yeah, when meaning case, that the cases where they're not really justifiable and you well, know, yeah, be I, I think um, you know, the, the accused is probably guilty as charged, and uh, uh, so uh, I, you know, I don't want the case. Yeah. Uh, my most of my income comes from training. I, I, I don't like to get in a position where I regard I, I rely on expert work as a majority of my income, because then I'd be tempted to take cases I don't want. Uh, I, uh, I say most cases that come to me, I turned out. I, I don't want them. Uh, I don't like the people involved. Uh, and I don't like either side and I don't want the case. And, you know, I'm not a material witness, so I can't be subpoenaed. Uh, so I just, uh, you know, politely tell them I'm not interested. Sure, which when actually makes case, you a more valuable witness when you do testify or when you do consult. I think. Once again, I think that actually makes you a more valuable witness when you you do. Well, I think yeah. I when I uh, when I think there's a case uh, where a person is has been charged who shouldn't have been, and I uh, I have a strong opinion on that. I think I can be a very effective uh, when it does go to trial. But uh, uh, those are the cases I like to get into the, the righteous cases. Fear and anger are both emotions that come up with armed defenders in self defense cases. John Farnham tells us that fear, reasonable fear, is a justification for the use of deadly force. Anger is not. In this next segment, John tells us a little bit about how to navigate that no man's land between fear and anger in a self-defense scenario. The law doesn't require you to be perfect. The law requires you to be reasonable. No matter what case you're involved in, uh, the you know the person probably could have done better. He, he probably he, he probably wasn't perfect, and uh, uh, fortunately the law doesn't require perfection. Uh, but um, things that get people in trouble, for instance, are uh, you know when you uh, use uh, deadly force to protect yourself uh, when you're frightened and your fears are legitimate. Uh, uh, you know, fear is uh, 
is is considered a legitimate motivation. You can shoot people because you're afraid. You can't shoot people because you're angry. Uh, and uh, we have cases where uh, shots are fired, uh, the assailant runs away, and then the shooter chases after him, shooting him. Uh, well, <laughs> mm-hmm. we can't make self-defense out of that. Uh, uh, once the, the threat is clearly gone, uh, you're required to stop using, the, the law requires you to stop using force once the threat is clearly gone. Uh, when you uh, chase after someone just because you're angry uh, uh, and uh, using deadly force along the way, you're that's you're going to have a problem with that. That's uh, that's something that you're is probably going to lead to criminal charges and probably ought to. Yeah, that's interesting, and that's that's tough for people to foresee how they're going to feel if they haven't thought about that circumstance. And and I feel sure. like in almost all the cases that we've been involved in or explored, there is some spectrum of fear to anger that involves because fear might be the dominant emotion that you feel but you're also there's a tinge of anger in there that this person's putting you in this position now where you have to make this life or death decision but then there's a certain point where the fear uh is subordinate to the the anger and then the anger dictates the emotion and and some of the most tragic frustrating cases that we've looked at are ones where otherwise law-abiding citizens were put in a place where they had feared for their lives and then that fear turned to anger, and then they'd done something that maybe they thought they never would do. Yep. Yep. Uh, this is why in training we have to discuss all this, and we have to exercise it. We have to actually get on the range and uh, and do exercises where you get a chance to go go through the motions, uh, you know, with live fire. That's why I like to, on the range when we train, I like to shoot at at targets that look like people, not just round circles on a piece of paper, but uh, pictures of people that have faces and look like people. I think people need to get used to the idea that you're you're applying deadly force to another human being. And uh, we all know it's just a piece of paper, of course, it's, but I think we need to, as close as we can, simulate on that on the range to give the students that experience and uh, let them feel those things to, to the greatest extent that we can. All right, friends, that's the podcast for today. I appreciate you listening in. Thanks for staying until the end. We've got a lot more of this conversation with John Farnham. So when we come back in the next week or so, you'll get to hear it. Until then, be smart, stay safe, take care. gun that's perfectly safe is perfectly useless.